Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Ah, oh, good morning, Pam. I have dragged myself out of the river. To come out of the river? <laughs> Where I've pretty much been uh, on every hot day. If I, if I haven't been at work, um, dousing myself with the hose. Uh, we, in fact, we've all been dousing ourselves with the hose. We walk around completely drenched at work. <laughs> I hop in the car, drive straight home and throw myself in the river. So it's a real treat to have that at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> I presume you're pretending, uh, pretending to uh, water the pots at work. Oh, we've been, yeah, twice a day. In fact, being at, uh, at a nursery is a really good lesson on how to water correctly. Yes. I have to say, before I worked there, I tended to, uh, I, yeah, I didn't treat my pots as well as I should have. And, and it's a real uh, learning curve, I think, working at the nursery and understanding when and how to water. And, yeah, these hot days we've been watering twice a day and uh, you try and because they're all sort of on the benches all really squashed in tightly together you have to make sure you look at each pot so you see that the water is actually getting to the getting to the plant and the reason we water twice a day is uh, essentially if we've missed anything in the morning then hopefully uh, we'll we'll catch it on the second time round and yep. it's also a top up water for those plants like things like the kangaroo paws and the the um, the billy buttons and and poas things that need that little bit extra water mm. so and and there's there's things there that do uh, really react badly if uh, they don't get that top up watering uh, th- things like the lily pillies the um, uh, Tasmania lanceolata, the uh, pepperberry, oh yes, and um, and the waratahs. If they don't get that um, extra water on those hot days, they do get a bit of leaf burn if if they're in pots. So mm. yeah, it's a it's a really good lesson in, in how to water being at a nursery. Mm. So not not just using the overhead sprinklers, which is used on the on the production side of the nursery, but getting in there and um, really it it gets you up close and personal with the plants, I suppose. So you know what's going on, and you can see any other problems that are going on, weeds that might be popping up in the pots, which of course they do invariably. Uh, so yeah, it's a very good lesson to be uh, watering in a nursery. I think everyone should have, every gardener should have to come and work in a nursery <laughs> and, and learn how to water their pots properly. Well, what what are hints for gardeners if they're going to be going away and leaving their pots for a week or two? Yeah, that that's a really tricky one, I have to say. Put them in the shade. Uh, get get them out of the sun would be the first one and in a shelter spot out of wind as well uh, just to try and reduce that transpiration. Uh, depending on the plant, you could put them in shallow containers of water so that they can just draw up the water. Uh, give them a really good soaking before you go. Uh, and as soon as you get back. <laughs> and as soon as you get back. Uh, sea salt really or should I say liquid seaweed, is really terrific. Um, it's got that sort of agar, agar in it, which essentially it uh, holds holds water mm. in, in the pots themselves, in the potting mix. So that that's something really useful to use. Uh, yeah, but get them out of the sun if you can. Mm. I, th- I think that's that's probably the key. And, yep. and, I mean, a lot of people are going away. I mean, and there's things you can use, you know, upside down um, soft drink bottles with spikes and so that sort of drip feeds the water yes, through yes. and all those little, yeah, tips and tricks, I suppose, yep. ensuring yep. there's mulch. I've, I've taken to using uh, pebbles 
as a mulch. I find that's uh, really useful for a number of ways. It keeps the soil on top really moist, stops it drying out, and also makes it much easier to water uh, because the potting mix doesn't splash everywhere. Yes, true. Um, and it stops uh, birds hopping in there and, and scuffling around and, and the mm. chooks especially. Um, <laughs> but not fighting something, <laughs> fighting something else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so there's yeah certainly a, a lot to learn. But I, I realised that I certainly underwatered my pot plants um, I think because they were natives, I tended to think, oh, you know, natives don't need a lot of water, definitely don't want to underwater them. But in pots, they they need watering every day through summer. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, and and some some more than others, of course. But, mm. yeah, yeah, definitely get out every every day when it's, especially if it, I suppose if it's uh, probably above 25, you want to water when it's overcast and, and not windy. Uh, you could, you know, give it a couple of days in between watering. Mm. But, yeah, they, they – I mean, it's such a different environment for a plant. They don't have um, any other means, of course, not not being in the soil. You are their guardians. That's so, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, they rely on you. Yeah, and, of course, if you add wind into the mix, they'll dry out even absolutely. quicker. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that, that's one of the keys in the nursery that we learn. I mean, e- even if it's overcast, if it's windy, we are watering those plants. Yep. That's going to take an awful lot of time in a nursery the size of Karanga. It, uh, it takes a lot of time and we all get assigned different zones. Fair enough. So that we make sure that everything's watered. Watering yep. is one of my favourite things to do. I'm a real water person, so I do spend three quarters of the time watering myself. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, throw it up. Even the, the girls in the shop came out uh, the other day and, and wanted a water, so we had to water them down. But no, it's a lot of fun. And, and uh, yeah, as I say, you do get to learn a lot, but it, do, it does take time. Uh, but uh, it's yeah, of course, necessary and, and and fun. But oh gosh, Evans Water Bill, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a big one, that's for sure. Yeah, but something that you can't you can't scrimp on. Well, exactly. If if it's your livelihood, you that's just right. need to get out there and, and water those plants. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We've got to say a very good morning to Greg Balderson. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Pam. That's um, that's all just reminded me why I'm glad I don't have a nursery anymore. Yes. Um, because it, it's, uh, yeah, it's the watering, on, on the, the, especially the really hot days where even when you do water twice a day and everything's under control and you've still got plants sort of really under stress. Um, uh, I, I can remember a few times over the years being up at sort of three and four in the morning mm. And it's still like 35 degrees yes. and it's just devastating when you're walking around the nursery and all your plants are dying and and there's only so much water to go around. I, I, mine was a little hobby nursery, of course, so it was, yeah. uh, it was all up to me and, and yep. you know, I'd been at work during the day and, yeah, you, you'd be still up at sort of three or four in the morning hand-watering all these pots and they were dying and it's <laughs> it <was> pretty... <laughs> it's so destroying. Pretty, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty, pretty tough stuff and... Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a, a, often I'd have to, you know, be at a farmer's market, you know, three hours later with a van full of plants that, you know, people was supposed to, supposed to buy on a daily, you know, in that sort of weather. And that's right. So you had that to look forward to that yes. you'd have to, you know, ship all the put all the plants in the van, ship them off to a market, unload them all. And everyone would probably go, yeah, I'm not buying anything today. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and and even the van, even transporting them, the van's going to be hot. Yeah. Well, it was funny because the, the van, uh, even on a hot day, I think the the van was a bit of a safe space for the plants. And oh, they'd okay. often, often if, if I'd pack them, the, the night so, sometimes I'd have two markets on the weekend, so yep. I'd leave them in the van on the Saturday night. Okay. And even though they'd spent quite a few hours 
in the hot afternoon sun because it was sealed. It was like a little uh, hothouse. Okay. And often the plants in the van pulled up better than the ones mm. I'd left at the nursery at home because right. they were sealed even though it was quite hot. Okay. Um, I often used to just open the van, squirt the hose in there and then sort of seal it up a bit again. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the, the plants in the van looked a lot better than the ones that I left out in the nursery. So, right. uh, uh that, that wasn't so bad. But, yeah, the... the Watering's fun, but yeah, there's there, there were times where it's like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> yes, yeah, it does. Exactly. And, it, it takes up pretty, a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty soul destroying <laughs> when, you, when you the prospects of selling anything were pretty low, and, and that's right. You're barely keeping these things alive. Yeah. Um, uh, but then it would come good again, and and uh, you know you, you'd talk to people that you'd sold something to that had brought them joy or something. So there was, there was always the upside as well, of course. Of course, but, uh, of course. Um, yeah, there were certainly moments mm, <laughs> mm. that were pretty tough. A- another good tip for uh, keeping uh, potted plants alive when you're away, uh, of, uh, tap timers too, um, little you can set up, especially if you haven't got thousands of pots, but mm. if, you, if, you, if you've got, you know, five or ten big pots or a, a manageable number of uh, pots, you can, uh, you know, set up little dripper systems on a mm. on a tap timer too. Which yeah, great idea. It's you, a brilliant you, idea. Uh, mm. When they fail, it's a bit devastating. When, like when the batteries run out while you're half, <laughs> you know, two days into your holiday or something. There but, you um, go. Check your batteries before you go. It sounds good, like you're speaking it, from experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's definitely a good backup system. So you, you do all the watering and the and the dishes and putting them in the shade first. Yes. And then the timer's a bit of a you know, to keep them healthy, but if yep. it fails, they'll probably still survive. But, yeah, you, you've got that watering system there that will keep them uh, well watered while, while you're away. Great. But, uh, yeah. Excellent. Okay, brilliant. All right, I'm going to get straight into uh, a few reminders of things that are on. Of course, uh, this is our very last show for the year. Um, and because uh, we won't be back until the first Sunday in February, there are a few things that are going to be taking place over the January period. So uh, I'll just quickly run through those for listeners. Uh, if you want to put uh, different events into your diary as a reminder of things that uh, you can maybe go and participate in and go along and have a look at. Um, now, the first uh, one is that uh, down at Rippenley Estate, they are running a series of community summer barbecues. Um, this is being put on by the Rotary Club of Glen Ira. And the very first uh, of these barbecues is actually today. Uh, now, they run through from 11am through to 2pm. And uh, <clears throat> tickets are simply the general admission to the estate. So that's uh, $15 adult, $12 concession, uh, $9 children 3 to 15 years and $40 for a family, two adults and two children and, of course, free admission for National Trust members. So entry includes the gardens, it includes um, the barbecue, of course, and a tour of the mansion subject to availability. Now, as well as running that barbecue today, um, it's also going to take place on uh, during January on Sundays and that'll be the 5th the 19th and the 26th. So it'll be um, classic sausage sizzle and vegetarian options and all proceeds will go to the National Trust. 
now also a reminder that coming up at Cloud Hill on Saturday the 25th of January, Melbourne Opera Trust uh, will be uh, uh, putting on opera in the garden, which would be uh, a really beautiful thing to do, uh, particularly on a balmy summer's night. So Saturday the 25th of January. Now uh, the general idea is you arrive 5 to 5.30, bring along a picnic, a bottle of wine if you like, um, some low fold-up chairs. Um, now you can, uh, for that one, you can book online by going to uh, simply typing in Cloud Hill and their website will come up or you can call Jeremy and uh, his number is 97511009. That's 97511009 for Opera in the Garden on the 25th of January. Now, uh, the only other thing taking place is that uh, Open Gardens Victoria will have um, a series of gardens open over the January period. The first two are actually on the same weekend, which is 18th, 19th of January. And these ones are both down in the Anglesey area. So uh, the first one is Sunnymead. Now... The address of that one is 48 Harvey Street in Anglesey. It's open 10 to 4.30 on both the 18th and the 19th of January. Uh, And the other one, which is open that same weekend, is Minter Drive Gully, which is at 115 Minter Drive in Belbray. And again, open 10 through till 4.30pm on both days on the 18th and the 19th. Entry uh, for both those gardens is $8.00. Students five dollars uh, under eighteens um, are free. Uh, so those two, as I say, are in the Anglesey area. Now the other two that are coming up, uh, which I'm mentioning because we won't be back on air till the second of February. And these these gardens open that same weekend, the first and second of February, uh, and these are both in Olinda. The first garden is Greythorpe. Uh, it's at 34 Four Dice Road in Olinda. That's spelt F-O-R-D-Y-C-E, 34 Four Dice Road in Olinda. As I said, Saturday 1st, Sunday the 2nd of February, 10 through to 4.30 again. Same price, entry $8, students $5, under 18s free. The other one, which is also in Olinda, is Yungella, spelt E-U-N-G-E-L-L-A, and this is at 140 Falls Road in Alinda. Again, that same weekend, Saturday 1st, Sunday the 2nd of February, 10 through to 4.30. And again, entry $8, students $5, under 18s are free. So uh, that gives people a few gardens to go along and have a look at if they're craving to see a little bit more greenery during this hot weather. So... Uh, I think people are very brave to open up in the middle of January, but I guess if you've got a, a shady woodland-style garden or, you well, know... I, I work in Forest Glade now, one of the big yes. gardens up on, on the mountain. That's uh, We're pretty lucky in that area, actually, because the, the lack of rainfall everywhere else doesn't seem to have hit as hard around the Macedon Ranges and... Um, and yeah, the forest guide looks really good at the moment, and it's got 
it's fifteen about fifteen acres, and there's a wow. huge fern gully down the back, which is amazing on a really hot day. Oh, you climb down into this fern so gully, that, so that's where we find you on a really hot. Yeah, day. you find yeah. lots of work to do yeah. in the yes. fern gully. Yeah, there's lots of stairs to repair down there. So, yeah, right. um, uh, so yeah, there's there's a good couple of acres of um, of steep windy tracks you can get lost in for a few hours. Down, down this perfect. beautiful fern gully, yeah. For a few young kids to go yeah, running yep. through the fern gully. Um, and, and as I saw the other day, there was a wedding there and the photographer was walking backwards and not looking and fell into the stepping stone pond with his expensive oh, no. camera. Oh, no. So that would have caught him off on a hot day as well. Oh, dear. <laughs> the camera, called the camera off. Yeah, yeah. Bummer. Watch hope, where hope you, you walk. Yeah, 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 hope you got some uh, photos before he fell in. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Well, I hope he can retrieve them. <laughs> More to the point. Yes. <laughs> Is that garden open on a daily basis? Yeah, the, yeah. Forest. I think it's only closed on total fire uh, on you know uh, total fire band days. Yeah, what, yep. what, extra, and public extreme. holidays. Uh, I, I think it's open public holidays. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, it's it's open pretty much every day unless there's a good reason for it not to be, which is usually to do with fire ban yes. issues. Um, Fair enough. And, uh, yeah, and as I say, there's sort of a little bit of something in there for everyone, really. It's, mm. it's that big. It's uh, sort of got a bit of everything. Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's nice. It seems to hold up well in the hot conditions, um, although it's, it's very hard to water because uh, – yeah, it, it, the watering system there has sort of been added to for over 35 years or something or 40 right. years. And um, no one person knows exactly where everything is and, <laughs> and it often faults and breaks and there's water pouring out of the ground out oh, of old dear. gel pipes and things. Um, so that, that makes it interesting. But, yeah, it seems to hold up pretty well yeah. uh, even through the hottest parts yeah. of the year. Yeah. What's the history of the house there, Greg? Um the house itself is only since Ash Wednesday. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a very strange house and it was sort of the the original uh, – the house actually is a little bit like the garden. It was uh, constructed after, after the fire, fires of the house yep. and it was – it looks like a mansion but it's not built like – it's not – it's it's uh, built like an A.V. Jennings home, right. like a kit home, yep. and it's been added – it's had about one room added over a period of about 20 years. Okay. So it's turned into what I like to refer to as an A.V. Jennings home that was <laughs> built next to Chernobyl. Yeah, right. Um, uh, it's this weird sort of labyrinth of rooms. Uh, there's a museum in the house, so uh, I think that they take groups of 10, but there's like the biggest collection of Napoleonic – ceramics in the world and good heavens and some beautiful artwork and some really horrible toby jugs that are worth a fortune as well these little ceramic jugs and all sorts of things in the house um uh but the garden itself i think uh the old the oldest sort of exotic trees were planted about 80 or 100 years ago um at that stage it was mainly a cow paddock Mm -hmm. and then um uh, cyril stokes bought it I think in the early seventies, and started planting it up as a as a as a uh, like one of the old hill station gardens. Yes, I yes. think it was his aim. Uh, and over since the early seventies up to now, they've sort of made the whole sort of fourteen fifteen acres into you know uh, manicured gardens and lawns and wow. um, yeah, some of it's not to everyone's taste, but it, like I say, there's a bit of everything there and and. Um, and I get to do all the fun stuff. So they've got their maintenance gardens there that, that do all the hard work with the lawns and things. And I get to go in and go, oh, we should do this and do something, you know, do something fun. You get and, the creative side. Yeah, yeah, I get yeah. the creative side. Wonderful. And, and fixing things that 
haven't been sort of looked at for a while uh, and have been looked over. So, um, uh, yeah, it's and the, even the artwork in the garden is quite interesting too. With mm. uh, there's a, a statue up the front uh, that was originally. Uh, at the exhibition gardens uh, okay. in the early 1900s when, wow. when Parliament was still held there and it sort of disappeared off the map and no one knew where it went and Cyril <laughs> bought it at an auction for about $75,000 or something. Right. And it's uh, yeah, the Victorian government asked to buy it back off him for a lot more than that. Right. And I think it's worth even more than that He wouldn't let it go. Now. No, no, it's, it's, it's probably one of the sort of most uh, well-known statues in the garden, sort of just in the front gate. Um and yeah, there's some there's a uh, there's a Rodan sort of poking around the garden somewhere, wow, an original really? Rodan, and and uh, there's some uh, statues there that I'm not particularly fond of either. That are sort of a bit sort of cheap and not that good. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then you walk around a corner and there's a, a marble hand carved statue that's like, oh wow, that's amazing. Yes. Um, so yeah, as I say, it's a it's a a big garden. You can spend a lot of time in there, and there's some cool little corners and mm. and uh there's always a bit of green grass or something and and it's well worth worth the visit yeah. um do people fantastic. come up for picnics yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's uh, there's even a few like little rotundas and things in there so there's 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 one particular one up near the front gate that there's often a line of people it seems to get in there to have lunch so you'll you'll see one family in there with all their tables set up and and having a lovely time and Another people, another lot of people around, come down so and go. Oh, oh, damn. Um, and another funny thing is the stepping stone pond. Uh, I did the rock garden there a few years back. I uh, did like a little miniature rock garden, bonsai type garden. Um, and while I was working on it, it's right next near the, next to the stepping stone pond. And some days there were a line of people waiting to get onto the stepping stone pond and they pull a pose and their friend takes a picture of them yes. like like they're teetering off, yes. off going to fall in the pond. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's funny. And then they swap and do the same thing and then they move on and the other people you just thought were milling around, they come up and do the same thing oh, and it was just a chain of people doing the same thing. <laughs> maybe for that's what the photographer was trying to do. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> he he certainly wasn't watching, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's uh, autumn particularly, there's – it's quite busy there mm. in autumn because it's quite beautiful with all the uh, autumn foliage. Um, but uh, spring's a really good time too because Cyril's planted something like 40,000 roadies. Wow. Uh, including azaleas and things. But yes, So there's yes. mollus azaleas and azaleas and rhododendrons and some interesting species ones as well. And I, I think um, they used to buy off uh, – what was the big rhododendron nursery – uh, Boltons was it up in yes yep. yes yes and after thirty years uh, when I think Boltons were closing down I think um, uh, Cyril went up there to buy a few more roadies off them before they shut down and they were, got to chatting and they didn't realise it was for a pri- all, all the roadies after all these years that they'd been buying was for a private garden they thought Cyril was a nursery oh. and so they'd been selling them all these roadies thinking it was a, a retail nursery, but it was mm. all going into one garden. He's like, how did you fit them all in? <laughs> um, space. Yeah. So, so springtime's uh, in that roadie season. Would you, be pretty it's pretty It's a pretty uh, spectacular roadie garden yeah. as well with all the, the different colours and, and fragrance too. There's yes. a lot of the roadies, of course, have, uh, especially the molluscs, um, have really beautiful perfumes as well. So Fantastic. Um, but, yeah, even now there's still... 
uh, peony roses and uh, a perennial border that I've planted up in winter is mm-hmm. looking really good. And um, uh, yeah, laburnum archway uh, and fountains and yeah, it's it's a it's fun. It's, Great. A, it's, a, it's a big garden and it's sort of fun to have a look around. Yeah. Now, what we need to do is tell listeners where it is. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's in <laughs> yeah it's in Mount Macedon. You come if you drive up the main road, you'll you'll see it. It's got it's it's open pretty much every day. Right. Um, and it, it's uh, I can't even think of the number, but it's it's past the CFA. If it's a, it's about five hundred meters or so past the CFA. And I presume and it's it, signposted. And, and there's big signs out the front. Yep. Uh, the garden open signs out the front. So yep. the main and, road. So because I I was up there visiting Stephen's garden. Um, was it last weekend? It was open. Can't really remember now. Two um, weekends. Two I weekends. Think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Stephen's garden and, and Kalem, which was up there, and yeah, Macedon is sort of split up, isn't it? Yeah. There's the sort of almost the residential zone on on the one side, and then the main street with with other. Yeah. Homes so so Macedon's right. sort of down the bottom, off to the left, like yep. He- yep. heading up from Melbourne. Um, but if you stay on Mount Macedon Road yep. um, and you go past the trading posts and the pub mm-hmm. yep. and then you go up a little steep hill and there's the CFA on the left-hand side yep. and then you go up a little bit further up a hill uh, and round the corner and, the, and there's uh, uh, forest glades just up there on the right. Um, it's just before Sangster's Road if that helps anyone. Um, which is actually where I grew up. So I sort of grew up next to – I spent most of my childhood in Forest Glade Gosh. and now I get to work. Yeah, that's <laughs> wonderful. Um, yeah. And the the trickiest thing is the parking because the, 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 the roads, are, like most mountain roads, is, there's not a lot of room on the sides. Yeah. And the, the – I'm not sure who's put in all the restrictions, but there's – I think last count there was something like 30 no standing zone signs all oh, up really? the main street now, which are there all year and look terrible. Oh. Um, and the worst part of the traffic are the, is in autumn, I guess. Um, yes. So it's a shame they can't take them down for the rest of the year and just put them up in autumn. Uh, but the parking is the tricky thing. So the parking is in front of Durrell, uh, uh, which is next door to Forest Glade. It's sort right. Of, so that there's only – just be careful if you go up there that you don't park in a no-standing zone because yes. you'll get a ticket. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just just watch that. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's easy enough to find. It's just make sure you don't park where you're not allowed because there'll be out, someone out looking for you, especially on a long weekend or something. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, it's high time we opened up our talkback lines if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. As I said, uh, we will. this is our last show for uh, 2019. So if you don't ring this morning, you won't get a chance until 2nd of February. So uh, the number to speak to AB or to speak to Greg, 94190155. Or this morning we have Rosemary on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary, 94198335. Double seven. Hey, B, let's let's make a start on a couple of the plants you've brought in. Okay, okay. Well, we've got a bit of a theme going today. All right. Uh, th- I've gone for water plants, and uh, even though one is not traditionally known as a water plant, um, everything will become apparent. So okay. I've sent I've sent uh, pics through to Liz, who's popped them up on uh, Instagram, I think, and, and uh, maybe the Facebook. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I have. Um, 
I've decided to fight against the rabbits in my garden by concentrating on the water features. <laughs> so ones that they can't get to. So we have a pond in the garden and it's a delightful pond. It was created by Loretta, but I think uh, we've both learned a lot since that pond was put in. And uh, it really wasn't a thriving uh, water place where uh, the ducks would come in and swim around, but essentially it just turned into a great big pile of algae uh, more often than not. There's rocks overhanging it. It's a concrete pond. It's approximately uh, a metre deep, so not too deep, uh, but there weren't any shallow spots. And as we know, tadpoles love shallow areas. They they like to feel safe in the shallow areas and where the water's a little bit warmer. And there weren't really any places for growing plants. So I tried to have plants in pots in the garden and, and in the middle of the pond and it had just failed miserably. And finally, I totally cracked it and said, we are, we are doing it. We are doing the pond. I want a thriving pond. So uh, Ray emptied it out and there was probably half a metre of sludge at the bottom and uh, it's underneath a, a polyanthemus. And uh, the cockies had pruned, in inverted commas, so much of the polyanthemus. Like we had a carpet of twigs and leaves oh, around gosh. the place and a lot of that went into the pond. So we cleaned all that out. And then I collected uh, a whole lot of uh, old logs, which uh, there'd been a, a storm go through. And on one of the main roads in our area, there oh, man, so many trees came down, trees and massive branches. Mm. Uh, they were in the middle of the road, so I knew they weren't habitat at that point. I knew that they hadn't started breaking down and, and yep. become part of the forest. So uh, we went up there and, and collected quite a few. Um, I've put them through the pond and then I draped shade cloth over the top of the pond, over the top of those logs. So it created all these different levels. Okay. And uh, I toyed about whether to use soil or pebbles in the pond. And I ended up going for scoria um, as my sort of base. So essentially I was just trying to create uh, different levels in the pond. Yep. So places where I could plant and places where... Uh, different critters could hang out and uh, so I chose scoria it's it's light to move around it it was cheap uh, and it sort of overflowed the edges of the pond so it doesn't look too out of place like the pebbles would have yes yes. and uh, of course it's uh, a little bit hollow and it's got lots of surface area for bacteria which will help break down the nutrients in the water so created different levels and I've got logs sticking out all over the place and then planted it up with a a bunch of different indigenous uh, water plants, which I'm really enjoying getting to know at the nursery. I sort of, when I first started there, I was like, oh, all these rushes and sedges and goodness gracious, I've got no idea what they all are. And uh, I'm really starting to get to know them now, which I'm enjoying. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, indigenous water plants. So I've put them all through the pond. We've got things like Carex um, oppressor, Carex vesicularis. We've got a bunch of Carexes. Um, Juncus pallidus and all of these plants play such an important role in in waterways and they're they're real insect attracting plants and of course what eats insects lizards and frogs so that's why they so they're being attracted they're being attracted yeah in fact I had literally just refilled the pond and planted it up and uh, there were skinks actually swimming 
Good like they came in and because the, the scoria was kind of over, you know, going over the edges of the pond, it was really safe for them and they were coming. It was on the, that really hot day. I was moved a metre and a half of uh, scoria in 35 degrees. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bit carried away. I thought, oh, I'll just do a little bit. And then I ended up doing, we've got two baths. So I, I did the same, gave them the same treatment. And we've got a, a couple of uh, big pots, um, half wine barrels and, and things like that. So I gave them all the scoria treatment and planted them up and haha the rabbits can't touch them uh, so it's it's all looking good so I've gone with a bit of a, a water theme here today so the the first one uh, I'll talk about um, it's one of my favorite plants water plants and unfortunately it's it's not indigenous to me um, which is a real bummer because it's it's quite unique. And I've sent some sort of before and after shots to Liz so people can see what it looks like in the pot. It's small. And then we've got a whole lot of different water plants at the nursery that are going gangbusters and around the pond and different areas through the creek there. And uh, so people can see what they look like when they're sort of a little bit bigger. Um, so this um, particular one is the common name is black bristle brush. That's a real tongue twister for this time of the morning. (laughs) Um, Or Corazandra inodus. And it's it's actually one of the Carexes, which is interesting because I I thought it was um, more of a a rush because it's got fairly round stems and that's one of the sort of distinguishing features between them. Um, The water plants sort of fall into those two different categories, the rushes and and the sedges. And... um, so this particular one's got uh, quite uh, round, uh, greyish stems. Uh, ends up being probably about maybe 80 centimetres tall. Uh, not too tall, but it forms these really nice, dense clumps. And that's that's going to be a, a sort of a bit of a feature of all these plants. They all, uh, that I brought in today, they all clump forming and they all get to you know, round about 80 centimetres a metre tall. Uh, what I like about this one is the, uh, the flowers and and the seeds that form on that they sort of form about three quarters of the way along to the top of the stem and uh, they're really quite unique so sort of little half um, half ball I suppose of, of flower and uh, seed which looks looks quite unique it's really attractive isn't it yeah so this um, all, pretty much all of these plants that I brought they're um, the, the thing about the water plants is they grow in environments, they grow in, in wetland sort of environments that, are, that occasionally they'll be flooded and occasionally they'll dry out. So they're really tough plants. Mm. And so it doesn't matter if you've got them in a wet spot in the garden, it doesn't matter if it's going to dry out for a couple of months. It's not. It really is not going to be an issue if they're established. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so this is one of the ones that it forms a, a really lovely clump. Uh, it's pretty much um, from West Australia, grows naturally West Australia through South South Australia and a little bit into uh, Victoria, sort of a- around the coastal areas. And, um, yeah, it just uh, put it in boggy soil and uh, it looks really unique in, in my mind anyway. Mm. <laughs> it's just uh, – what, what do you think? What do you guys think? Yeah, well, it's quite it's, I sort of see a lot of these um, – uh, that sort of habitat out in the wild. Yeah. Uh, so often – I was at Churchill National Park a few weeks ago and you're halfway up the top of this granite mountain yep. and there's all these rushes and it's like, well, it's hot and dry now. There's – like how could that – grow on the side of a mountain yes. quite close to the top. Yes. 
and then it makes you think about what's actually happening underneath the soil and and why something like that would survive there and obviously it's the big granite boulders underneath catch and direct the water and it's got to come out somewhere yes, and sometimes course. it comes out close to the top of the hill even yep. as well yep um and obviously like you're saying in the in the wetter seasons there's that's when they need the water they yep. don't necessarily need the water in the so they're the sort of plants you can plant closer to the edge um one of the gardens i work in we have we built a wetland and that gets really dry in summer mm-hmm. um but we've i've built it so in whenever it floods like whenever there's a lot of water around it's on a dry creek bed and it just fills up and makes this big floodplain and then it slowly drains out over a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and, which it, yeah which and, is yeah. and that's that's a natural environment rather than having like you don't have to have a constantly full pond. Yes. If, if you plant it well, you can yep. have maybe a, 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 a sump on the pond where you fish and some plants that need constant water, you can have them in. But you can also have it so the water from the roof goes through your pond before it goes into the stormwater or something. Yep. Yes, yes. Um, and have these big floodplain areas on the sides of your ponds where you can plant things like this that can cope with being flooded and then drying out later on. Mm. And it just adds a whole new I, I kinda like having a garden where it's sort of uh it's not the one thing all the time. Mm. So so you can have like when you go out into nature, you don't have these beautiful uh alpine uh, meadows flowering all year round because some of the year they're under snow and exactly. in the hot yeah. part of the year they're all dried out. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Um, but to go out there and capture that moment where there's so so I, I like I love those plants that sort of grow in between and 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 suit our climate as well. Yeah, so, and so you th- don't have to really work for them. That's so right because a lot of people plant exotic plants because they love noticing that change of seasons where with exotic plants sometimes it can be pretty obvious you you have the spring blossoms etc etc but I mean there's change of seasons in every climate in in all nature it's just a matter of noticing the Mm. change of seasons I suppose and yeah as you were saying you know with the with the wetlands I mean, they're so important to us and they essentially act as um, buffers between um, the ocean and the land. So if there is a flooding system, the wetlands is what's going to just kind of hold on to that water for a little bit longer, filter all the pollutants out of it before it goes into the ocean. You know, they're fantastic nurseries for a whole bunch of critters, probably, you know, maybe a third of Australian sort of water birds and fish species will will come into the wetlands land areas and the mangrove areas so they perform such an important function uh, around in in nature and they can in our own gardens as well mm. as you say just collect that storm water off the off the roof before it rushes away down you, you the can drain, do it in small scale too the, so the same Absolutely. the same garden i built the wetlands in um uh, a friend mary she's also bought these big uh, water pots that are about a meter across yep and they're only about 30 centimeters deep and I built a little stone wall across half the pot right? and put some sort of sandy soil on one side and one of them's got a gunnera manicata in it or oh, wow. tintoria. Yeah. And it's doing really well. And then under, it's also got canna lilies and uh, another one's got um, one of the Tropicana canna lilies and Hesperantha uh, cochinea. The, so that that's a swampy growing thing. It's got these bright lobster red flowers that flower all through the warmer months. So you've got these, you know, deep red canna lily leaves that are filtering the roots you can see coming out into the water. Yeah. Right. There's little goldfish in the water side 
yep. that, that uh, nibble on the roots and eat all the algae and everything and some water snails. And it's just this little ecosystem that yep. works beautifully. And uh, I'd say a lot of the Australian natives would probably be really well suited to that sort of oh, style. absolutely. So, so you can pick out that those really structurally pretty ones and yep. put a little combination together that works well yeah. for, if not all the year, most of the year. Yeah, um, yeah. And just have this little thing sitting on your front veranda that's got fish, water, yep. some nice rocks and a bit of sand and soil with these cool, you know, nice-looking plants poking out of the back. But the, the gunnera we had to shift because it was growing over her back door so she couldn't get oh, out. Oh, she couldn't get out. <laughs> gunnera taking over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and it's amazing how big you can get a gunnera oh, just yes. in a metre by uh, oh, you know, so, something that's, that's quite a, a small size and, you know, the leaves on it were not, not quite as big as the one I've got at home that gets up over the, the gutters on the roof. Right. Um, but big enough, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're quite impressive plants. So, so as you say, you can, you can go – you can have a wetland that covers – you know, quite a, a few square metres, or mm. you can just have one in a in metre a in a pot yeah, that's absolutely. only a metre across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And, I know in, in uh, Melbourne there's a, quite a few councils that are, I think it's maybe the uh, Whitehorse Council especially, they've got a, um, a how to create a rain garden and there's how to create one in the ground and then how to create one in a pot, which mm. is essentially what you've just explained, just yeah. a matter of having that uh, the, the, the water from the roof coming through that and then there's a bit of an overflow before it goes out into out into the stormwater mm. system. And, yeah, it allows you to have, a I suppose, a different element in your garden and just having that water there, all the time is uh, yeah. Oh, the birds have been going crazy. I've yeah filled up all of these water features, and there's uh, there's a bird, different bird at each one. It's it's quite incredible. Which I suppose is a, another thing we should talk about about the importance of having water in your garden oh, at absolutely. this time of year for yes. all the critters and um, some on the ground and some up higher if, if there's cats around. And, yeah. and the scurry would be good for bees as well to land oh, on the edge of the pond and yes. get a drink without. And the hoverflies. Oh, there were thousands of hoverflies that came in and all yeah going around the plant. So it's incredible how literally I just planted it and and yeah. then. And then then they arrived. And, uh, yeah, so the whole idea when these plants eventually grow, they'll be filtering out all those excess nutrients that are in the water and mm. uh, hopefully we'll have a nice clear pond rather than a um, mm. algae-ridden exactly. yes, puddle, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Talking exciting. about um, critters needing water at the moment, we had an incident only a couple of days ago where um, I got up in the morning and uh, went to check that the dog's water bowl was was full of nice fresh water and there was a microbat flapping madly trying to keep its head above water. It had gone in and obviously couldn't get out. So we had to rescue it in a hurry, tip out the water in a hurry and just um, we put it onto, onto the back door mat lifted it up out of reach of the dog and just um, left it alone um, and it's flown off and it's safe. Yeah, but, okay. But it's just a – so you've also got to think about um, how deep your, your 
your water bowls around the garden and things are so that well, critters just, can get out again. Just put a stick in one too. For, yeah, especially or a for rock or things. something. Yeah, yeah. So there's, yes. Yeah, I, I put in quite heavy logs so that they, and you make sure that they attach to the side of the of the um, bowl or pond or whatever it is so that critter can actually get out because yep. if it's a little rodent or something, it's, yep. yeah, mm. it's not going to be able to. But that's amazing that um, your dog didn't... Uh, I know. It. I know. Like, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, thank goodness. <laughs> and uh, of course, we do have to be careful with uh, with microbats, just in not handling them because yeah, they, that's right. Yeah, they do have the um, um, a couple of different diseases that yep. it can be fatal. So not not many uh, bats have them. I think it's something like maybe seven percent of bats, and they have found of the microbats, and they have found that it's the the bats that are actually. Um, sicker anyway that tend to have these diseases mm. but um, yeah we do have to um, be careful and, and yeah the authorities say don't handle them without wearing gloves and, and long sleeves and yep. uh, if you're bitten or scratched yeah you need to go and, go and get treated yep. so um, but yeah that, that's good that it was a, a good outcome for that little that little critter did yeah. it fly away during the day? Yes it did yeah okay. yes yeah Yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't, you don't very often get to see the microbats, do you? No. Sort of. No, to see them up close. Yeah. And of course, um, big, when it was in the water bowl, it's, you saw its wings outstretched. Yeah, beautiful. Mm. Um, because it was madly flapping. And, yeah. But it was a great chance to have a look at it up close, and yeah. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Sometimes when I'm out walking at night time with the headlamp on, you'll get one. Getting a little bit too close. We get a lot of them in the garden. <laughs> they zoom, particularly twilight time. They will yeah. zoom just past the outside of the house. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that they're nesting up in some of our our big trees that we've got in the garden, and um, so you'll definitely see mm. them, you know, in the twilight. Yeah. But, um, yep. They're lovely little things. They, they really are. are. They are. Amazingly, we've got about 70, 80 species of microbats. I know. I so think it's amazing. It, it yeah. is amazing. And they are absolute supreme pest controllers. So we want to have them around. And you're right, they would be, they'll be uh, nesting and uh, um, they go under bark. They go into any tiny little crevice. Some of them go under the tin roofs and you think it would be too hot, but it's not. They hang out in the tin roof. And, yep. uh, and, and you'll probably have more. Now that you've put the water, you fix up the water with uh, all the extra. Well, we're on the river, well. so we have we have a lot okay, anyway, right. and, and we're in the bush. So I've got them in the living in the cottage at the moment, which is a little bit uh, annoying because they poo everywhere, yeah. of course. <laughs> but uh, they do move around roosts uh, just to stop the parasites building up. So um, if they are in your roof some somewhere, um, chances are that in three months' time they won't be there. So yep. you, know, you just kind of put up with the poo and clean mm. it up. And <laughs> I always look; I can't actually see them. There's so many crevices in the cottage and they're oh they're great extremely at hiding. tiny yes, yes. They're, they're they're terrific at hiding so. yes i've had them you know in the house um a few times in the past um we found that they they tended to come down the chimney oh yes um and uh, we've, we've sort of tried to fix that since by, by actually putting very, very fine wire over the tops of the chimneys to try and stop them getting in. But yep. there's still nothing worse than, than sitting watching television at night <laughs> whoosh, and you whoosh, suddenly whoosh. get yes, <laughs> swooped on. Yeah. And the very first time it ever happened, I, I said, I think we've got a bat in the house. <laughs> and, and all, you know, the, the children and my husband all decided that I was 
definitely you going batty. batty. Yep. Yeah, that there was no such thing as a bat in the house until the next night where they all saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, they're, they're great little creatures, but definitely nicer out of the house than in the house. Yes, <laughs> and contrary to the to the myths, they're not going to fly into your hair. They have uh, very good... Uh, sense of sight even though they don't see very well they've got that echolocation that's so, right yeah, which, which probably works better it works instances. much better yeah. yeah so they're not going to they, they can get very close and... as i say when you're walking through the forest oh, with, at a night time, with a headlamp yeah. oh yeah you know, you've got the mozzies coming down you, to you, you and can, moths coming to your yeah, headlamp you can <laughs> feel their their you don't often hear them but you just that last little second as they Go flick, just flick across yes. your forehead, yes. and um, although owls can do that too, I've had a few close encounters with some owls out the okay. forest too, oh, okay. um, which is a little bit more exciting because, yeah, despite the fact that they're quite silent, they can still move a lot of air as they do that little swoosh above yes. your head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, amazing. I will uh, remind listeners uh, we are running through until nine fifteen, our <clears> usual <throat> time slot. If you'd like to jump on the phones and give us a call this morning. Uh, if you want to ask a gardening question, if you've got a, a bat tail or a critter tail <laughs> yeah, to tell, we'd love to tail. hear from you. Uh, the number 94190155 to speak to AB or Greg in the studio. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary on the outside line, 94198377. Let's go to uh, another one of these water plants, AB. All oh, right. What shall we go for? Oh, let's go for, seeing as like Greg was talking about nice, bright things, uh, this particular particular one I brought in is uh, Lithrum salicaria or the purple loosestrife, um, even though it's got a pink flower. There is a pink flowered form and a uh, purple flowered form. Uh, the purple flowered form, the leaves are slightly smaller. Um, these ones are sort of um, probably about ooh, maybe six, seven centimetres, uh, quite bright green, um, quite sort of lanceolate uh, shape. And the, the plant itself um, forms quite a nice shrub. It, it might get up to about a metre and a half tall and quite a dense shrub. And then it has these uh, lovely uh, bright spikes of uh, flowers, uh, either pink or purple, and it is another of the the bog type plants. Um, can can be completely in water, or can be just on the margins. So okay. you could even keep it in a pot and just keep it extremely wet. Um, in it, it is a, a Victorian plant, or it's, it's um, through quite a few of the. Uh, sort of South Australia, Victoria, and then up the coast into a little bit into New South Wales. And um, it's a lovely plant. It's one of those plants which you absolutely don't notice for most of the year until it throws up these really bright spikes. And it um, really is quite eye-catching. And this is the time of the year when, they, of course, they sell in the nursery because people are like, oh, my goodness, what is that um, that's flowering in the garden? So on the... Um, Instagram site I've given the before and after again so you can see what it looks like as as a quite a sort of substantial shrub um so yeah it's lovely the butterflies love it they always coming down and hanging out so it obviously has a, a bit of nectar in it and uh yeah in winter it will pretty much die down but you can hack it hack it back it tends to look a bit sort of uh scraggly well the, the, the other thing too months. i've noticed that i've actually i didn't know these were native so i thought i'd introduced a weed into this garden this is the the wetlands that oh, i was yes. telling you about before yep. um there's the uh, i think there's the purple form there um and i thought i'd introduced 
some weed into this environment, not knowing that it was probably native to the area. Right. Because I couldn't remember planting it. I was yep. like, where have I got this weed from? Um, but the, apart from the beautiful flowers, I noticed the ones certainly in Woodend in the, where this garden is, uh, once it starts to get really cold, they have beautiful autumn colour as well. Yeah. They, they colour yep. up fantastically. Uh, so you get sort of, out, you know, the dried grass in the – in in the um the floodplain area, and then all of a sudden, once you get the first few frosts, you'll get these bright yellows and sort of warm oranges and reds through the leaves of these things. So wow. they're actually a really useful plant and quite pretty. And the ones in this floodplain seed around and do their own thing. So mm. once you've got it there and it's happy, it'll sort of do its own thing, and you just leave them be and okay, you know, pull out the ones you don't want and yes. leave the ones you do want. They're, they're not. It's not like it'll be just that. For an acre, it's, yeah. they're not that bad. They'll, they'll just yeah, just uh, here and there, and and a beautiful little plant. But yeah, I, I didn't realise they were a native. Yeah, uh, they're, and they're from um, parts of Asia, America, and and Europe as well. So they're, they're all over the place. Um, and yeah, to to me, they sort of add that really um, bright, bright green. Whereas a lot of natives, oh, just. Noticed a little weed in there. Um, a lot of natives tend to have that sort of greyish uh, green colour. So That's this right. Is, this so is one of the ones that adds that real nice bright green into the garden. And, and, so. and, and the bright colour as well. Yeah, so, bright yeah. colour. So it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a real treat of a real treat of a plant. So, mm. Yeah, very good one for uh, yeah either in pots but um, sunny or partly shaded conditions. It's, yeah, it seems happy. to grow a little bit like a gower or something, doesn't it? It's all I've found in this particular garden. It's so it's it's shrubby, but yeah. it's a small thing. It's more like a you know sort of a woody perennial. Yeah, I tend to think of it as a salvia, um, just because in my head that's how I treat. Uh, like I've got a yeah. salvia lecantha, and and every. Um, you know, yeah, I just kind of literally hack it down at the base and it I, I springs back snip up the again. ones up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, my kind of plant, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. If, yeah. If, if they get a bit squirrely. When it looks ugly, you just whip a Yeah, it just totally bring it back down to ground and let it start again. So, yeah, one of the goodies. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. We might come back to some of your plants, um, AB, but, yep. Greg, we've, we must get to a couple of the ones that you've brought in. One is really highly perfumed. I'm smelling it from here. What oh, one's that's, that? Um, hang on. That's probably the the uh, me, uh, tree marigold. Oh, right. Is that what you're smelling? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's it. So oh, I can never remember the um, uh, Tagidi's... I can't remember the species name of this one. Um, I just bought uh, – it was next to the, the gladi- one of the gladdies I bought in and I've planted it next to a pathway. So it's – I think they're from Mexico. Yes, and they it, and are. It can get up to – I think they're known as Mexican tree days. Tree da- day, uh, yeah, tree yeah. marigold, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've planted it next to a pathway. So every time you walk up this pathway, you brush it and it's that smell that it clings to you as well. It's it sort does. Of, it's really You can potent. brush past it yeah. and, it's, and catch a whiff, but then you can sort of smell it on your – you know, ten minutes later. Yes. Um, it can be a bit much sometimes, but Lamonii. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it seems Lamonii. to grow from cutting pretty easily, and mm. it's covered in sort of like really warm yellowy, almost a tinge of orange, but it's mm. it's uh, a warm yellow uh, flowers, like little marigold flowers in clusters. Um, but it's also got. Uh, lovely sort of fine foliage as well mm. and it's something you have to hack into every now and again because it can get uh i think mine sometimes gets up to about uh you know 12 feet tall wow um, so it can get quite big but then it gets leggy and starts to arch over and look 
a bit yeah, unkempt. Yeah, so you need to. So again, it's one that you can get the whippersnipper on to, or or yep. you know, just get the uh, the loppers and chop it off down to a foot or so, and it'll uh, sprout back up again. But it's also one of those things where you don't know when to prune it because it always seems to it's have flowers flower. on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's actually you, a really good plant. I mean, just even if you're driving down the street. You always notice them. Yeah, yeah. They, they hit your eye because that yellow really stands out. Yeah, and the and the smell comes from the foliage, and yep. it's. I, I always think of it as some sort of like uh, pineapple lolly or something like mm. that. It's sort of an odd smell. It's it's like a lemon balm type mm. smell, um, but, but it's it, more on the pineapple side yeah. or, or something. Yeah, it is very strong though, which. It reminds me um, of an Artemisia or something, you yep. know, that, the wormwood, that same pungent yes, smell yep. that you mm. can get. Um, I'm wondering if what's the smell attracting? I presume it's it's for attracting the pollinators of some sort, is it? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You, yeah, you you would imagine. You would so. think so yeah. that it's yeah. there for a reason, but or, uh, or to uh, deter something too, I guess, is another reason for especially. Uh, the like leaves smelling uh, yep. can be obvi- uh, sometimes to deter um, uh, herbivores munching yep. on the leaves. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true in this case, but um, as you say, it's quite pungent. Mm. Um, well, I mean, like for instance, the wormwood is used in in chook mm. pens and things to deter lice and mm. that sort of thing. Maybe maybe this has a similar effect. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's not loved by everyone either because no, I know a few oh, people oh, that no, go, what's it's, that smell? It's a level, yeah, hate, <laughs> yeah. hey, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think probably in its uh, natural environment it would certainly be attracting the pollinators mm. um, but um, and and maybe here too. Have you yeah. seen it? Like surely there would be not, butterflies I, I've hanging not overly, out on that. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, not not overly noticed it but, but as I say, you sort of um, – it's one of those things that's always got flowers on it so it's going to be attracting pollinators yep. just because of the fact it's got – flowers on it but yep. yeah as you say once you remove something from its natural habitat uh, a lot of its little intricacies and and things that it's evolved over millions of years get lost when yeah. you take it out of that environment and, yeah. and you know stick it in a garden and prune it carefully and things like that um so yeah it's a but it's certainly a pungent smell whatever it uh evolved that smell for mm. um it, it's uh well it's managed to fill the whole studio which mm. is... yeah yeah sorry sorry if you don't <laughs> no, no, no. and i'm fine well <laughs> one of the other plants were sort of like it didn't flower um ah. put that up here because uh, this is All also right. this is also quite pungent if it was in flower it hasn't quite opened yet yep um it's actually still probably a week away but i thought i'd bring it anyway because one of the only bulbs i really had uh at the moment and it's one of the smaller Amorphophallus. Right. So this is uh, Amorphophallus conjac. And if that was open, uh, none of us would then be going, oh, that's that lovely studio. smell. <laughs> yeah, because it, it smells like rotting meat. It'd be yes. silence. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I've grown these for 20 years or so, and they're subtropical. So I thought, oh, I'm never going to flower one if I can just grow it. Because uh, yep. they've got beautiful leaves on them as well that can get uh, as nearly as big as a gunnera leaf. Uh, okay. Sometimes they've got these beautiful uh, cut leaves. Um, and I could grow the bulbs up to about five or ten kilos, you know, these big bulbs Goodness like this. Mate. And they'd get these massive leaves on it. And I was happy with that. And yep. um, I just – and I thought they were shade plants. I always grew them underneath my fetinia out okay. the back. Yeah. Um, and I read somewhere that – they like a bit of sunlight, so I dug one up, stuck it in a pot, and it flowered the next year. Oh, there you go. 
Um, this is only a small flower, so it's only about, uh, what, 30, 40 centimetres tall at the moment. It'll get a bit taller than that. It'll probably get up to 40 or 50. Okay. Um, but the first year I had one flower, it was about a metre tall, mm-hmm. and most of that was the actual spathe of the flower. And when it opened, you knew it, yeah. <laughs> As I say, a lot of these aroids, the smell's almost like an alarm system to say we're flowering. Yes. Because often I'll walk out, the things like Dracunculus and the mm. and the Helicodosterus, the, the dead horse arum, you know when they're flat, you know, it's you'll miss them because some, some of these flowers only last for a few days. They, That's right. They, they do their thing and then they go. Yep. And... Yeah, often you walk out the back door and go, "What? Something's died out here," <laughs> and you go looking, and there's and this, then you see uh, one, yeah, yeah. horridness. Uh, and over and up. of course, talking about the pollinators, that is exactly why that smell, which <clears throat> essentially is like the rotting meat smell, yeah, which yeah. attracts the, the flies, yeah. which uh, help right. pollinate it. Yeah, and I think the best one for that's the dead horse arum, which I've got videos of the flies in it and on it because that actually looks like a dead animal's bottom as well as smelling like one yeah yeah um it's got little coarse hairs and a tail and okay and it goes green after a few hours after it opens right and even to the point where when it's freshly open it smells like fresh mince meats like like beef mints like fresh mints yeah yeah um, but within an hour or two, the, the, the flower flushes this greenish colour and it smells like a bag of sausages that you left in your car for a couple oh. of days in summer. It's just the most hor- horrendous thing. I can thing. see why you'd want to grow it. Yeah, Greg. yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're just amazing, uh, you know, the evolutionary side of yeah. them. Yes, the, exactly. The, that instead of going down the bee pollinator path or the mm-hmm. fly, the, you know, a lot of, the same pollinator path that most a lot of flowers have gone down the aroids. Mm often have decided to let's go for the carrion eating mm, yes, insects yes. and uh and either smell like poo or or, or carrion yes <laughs> and mm. um and and the other interesting thing about the aroids is they also produce their own heat so they've uh I'm not sure if they've actually fully scientifically decided how they do it but uh I'd always read that it was a a, a radioactive isotope of potassium that they stored in their spadix that really? created heat so they Good they heavens. glow in the infrared most most aroid flowers um the best examples the uh simplicarpus one of the, from north america um which flowers very early spring and in areas where it snows and so uh, I've got a friend who lives in Philadelphia and if she goes out into the forest around her place while well, there's still a couple of inches of snow on the ground, you'll get these patches, these little circles of black where the snow's melted and you go and inspect and they, these things, the flowers on them uh, look like little Sydney opera houses. They're sort of a little, they're not very big, they're about as big as your hand. Right. And if, imagine if you, you sort of shape your hand to look like a thing, on a sail on the Sydney opera house. Yes. Um, except they're the aroid colours. They're sort of burgundy, brown, green sort of colours. Yes, yes. And they're called skunk cabbages, and uh, one of the common names, and they stink. Um, but they produce enough heat to melt the snow so the first flies that are around at the start of spring go straight to these things out in the forest. Plants are yeah. absolutely amazing, aren't they? It is, and uh, when you think about it, they haven't... I mean, plants, of course, evolved first before animals. So yes. at what point did they start evolving to to want to attract uh, pollinators that were carrion eaters? Because, mm. of course, the animals weren't around till later. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, yep. quite bizarre, It is isn't bizarre, it? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so but this one doesn't have any leaves. Uh, well, the, the, so the Amorphophallus, um, I think most of them, are summer growing. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of our Mediterranean aroids, like the Dracunculus and the Arum genus, um, are winter growing. The Mediterranean climate, like we we're talking about before, with the wetlands where they grow when the season's suitable for them to actively grow when there's moisture around, and then when it's hot and dry in summer, they suck back into their little tuber and disappear under the ground. Um, because the Amorphophallus uh, mainly grow in tropical to subtropical areas, um, the wet season's in summer, so they do most of their growing in the summer months. Okay. Um, and then go to sleep in winter. And the other weird thing about them is that uh, they send their flower up first. So yep. if you've seen the big Titan arum that they have at pretty much every botanic gardens these days. Yep. Uh, that's why they don't have a leaf with them. They're yep. just this big flower that looks like it's going to eat you. Yep. Um, mm. And the leaf actually comes up later. So so once the flower's finished and, and has done its thing, so you can literally have these uh, bulbs sitting out on your bench with a flower on them. Um, I know my, my friend in Philadelphia, she has these as well. And when at the Philadelphia Flower Show, they have a section for people entering Amorphophallus in flower. Okay. And none of them are in pots. They're just these massive big tubers with these flowers. And you, so you look at the um, the competition bench and there's these like five or ten kilo tubers sitting on the bench with right. these flowers coming out Whoa. the top. And then Can after you imagine the, the after smell the, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. display it's, hall? It's Do pretty, you get a um, free peg as you're coming in? It, it's, <laughs> it, it's inside. It's a big area, but it's right. inside. It, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, you see these things getting judged and it goes for a few days. So by the time the thing's finished, the one that won was the one that was open on the first day and it's completely gone. Yes. And the one that looks really good on the last day obviously was, you know, in a bud (laughs) when they bought it in on the first day. So, um, yeah, so they're sort of fairly ephemeral flowers, but yeah, and then you get these, Ginormous. This is one of the smaller Amorphophallus. There's ones that only get a few inches tall, mm-hmm. even the, the foliage. But this is sort of the middle of the range. So I think the biggest leaf I ever had on one was maybe a metre and a half tall. Oh, and really? Nearly two metres across. Wow. And it radiates out from the centre so it grows a stem straight up. Yep. And then the foliage is a finely cut leaf that radiates out from the centre stem okay. in, all, in all directions. Yep. So they're stunning leaves. Do you and get any markings on the leaves, Greg? Not so much, but the stalks are amazingly marked. Yep. And one thing that's common with a lot of aroids too is watching them unfurl is one of the – so you, you see a satellite unfurling out of out of a um, – you know, when they've launched a satellite into space and you see this satellite come out of its little cocoon and put all its little wings out. Yep. Aroids are much more amazing than those. They've got <laughs> these – they're so intricate how they pack themselves into their buds. Right. And so watching the leaves unfurl is amazing. The stalks on the, the leaf stalk is mottled usually. They've got these beautiful uh, specks similar to the flower here that you yes, can see yes. but much more intense. So when you've got a lot of them growing in one area, um, they can often look like little cities of these spikes coming out of the ground with mm. uh, pink and brown mottled stems mm. and then these leaves unfurl once they come You'll out of the... you have to do some time-lapse photography yeah. on that, one. They're amazing. Really. They are. Yes. They're, they're, uh, another really good family of the Arasamas. Uh, when watching those, the, the flowers are amazing on the Arasamas. They're probably one of the prettiest of the Aroid family. Um, but watching them unfurl is actually more... Uh, 
aesthetically pleasing than the flowers themselves, even yep. as pretty as they are. Because yep. um, it's just amazing how this thing packs into this little bud and then pops it out of the ground and then just unfurls itself. Mm. It's uh, yeah. uh, very interesting to watch. Um, Fantastic. And, yeah. How long does it take? Uh, several days sometimes, yeah. Okay. yeah. It depends on the species. Yeah. and um, So you get plenty of time to enjoy it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's still... Maybe, you know, from when the bud first is, first emerges from the ground to when it's fully open might be a week or two, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what it is. Um, and, yeah, but just to see them, how they pack themselves into their buds is amazing. It's, mm. a, yeah, it's, it's definitely – time lapse would be perfect for it. Yes. It's, they're they're – uh, I, I can picture them opening, you know, with because the, the, those things breathe as well in the time lapse – um, so to sort of be pulsating and breathing over a couple of days as it unfurls. Oh, it itself, would be, be amazing. amazing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yep. I'm sure someone's done it. You would think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. especially with something like the Morphophallus titanum. Oh, gosh. Surely someone's oh, yes. done some time lapse yep. on yep. one of those things. You yeah. would think so yep. with that one. Yep. Yeah, for Quite sure. unique. Wow. They're very Quite interesting unique. plants. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, that number, if you'd like to join us, we've got about another half an hour or so on air. So uh, if you'd like to phone in and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to AB or Greg in the studio. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary on the outside line, 94198377. Back to you, AB. Let's hit All another right, water plant. Hit it. Well, I'm going. this is... Not traditionally a water plant. I wouldn't have thought of it as such. <laughs> but I have brought it in for a particular reason. Okay. In a Please way, explain. In, in a way it does fit my theme. All right. Um, okay. So this is uh, one of Australia's iconic plants, without it a doubt. Is. <laughs> the South Australian uh, floral emblem is the Swainsona formosa, or the Sturt Desert Pea. So how does... How on earth does that relate to me bringing in a bunch of water plants? Well, essentially, these plants grow in the desert, and I thought they were only located in West Australia, but they actually have a really quite extensive range. Good heavens. I, I brought in yeah. a map to um, to show people okay. <laughs> that are in here. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, over a probably... Uh, at least a third of Australia. So West Australia, um, over much of West Australia, much of South Australia, uh, going into Northern Territory, uh, popping into New South Wales and even Victoria in in the arid areas. So Mm. uh, they grow naturally where there's rainfall sort of between 125 mil to 250 mil. But what's uh, fantastic about them and why I've sort of brought them in, well, besides the fact that they're flowering and they look amazing, mm-hmm. um, is they they grow naturally in these sort of in channels that have naturally formed through rainfall and, and depressions so that when it does rain, the water sort of all rushes into these areas where, where they're growing and that is the time when they're at peak flowering. So even though they're, they're a desert plant, uh, to make them flower and look good, they actually need quite a lot of water. 
Okay. So people have trouble growing them in Melbourne, but they are grafted. Well, you can buy grafted and non-grafted ones. All right. So if you're going to pop them in the ground, you definitely would uh, want a grafted version. Um, The one I've brought in here is a grafted one, and I've taken one home, and now I actually know how to grow them. And um, the trick with them is if you're putting them in a pot, and I would highly recommend in Melbourne have them in a pot, and for me it's going to be a centerpiece for our, for our Christmas day because they're oh, flowering this time of year. Yes. Christmas colors. <laughs> Your Christmas colors, they've got the the beautiful uh, bipinnate sort of soft gray green leaves uh, and the stems can reach up to about 2 meters long. So they will eventually sprawl. I know our friend Chloe uh, Foster grows them and uh, they will cover her uh, back table. So wow. she, she's had them there and uh, actually got some seeds from her. So I'm hoping they're going to germinate soon. And uh, so, and of course, they've got those absolute unique flowers, which sort of um, there's they, they used to be in um, the genus Cleanthus. Uh, yeah, Cleanthus. Um, and it's really funny because, of course, my first reference for anything plant is uh, Roger's uh, encyclopedias, uh, Roger and David Jones encyclopedias. And it was really funny because obviously they started with uh, at A and worked their way through the volumes. And so it is in uh, the C volume under Cleanthus right. uh, for Moses, but then it's also in the S volume under Swain Sona. So in, in between the times of him writing the C and the S, yep. obviously it's been redistributed into Swain Sona. And uh, and Cleanthus is uh, um, there's Cleanthus panisius and Cleanthus maximus, which are New Zealand uh, ones, and their flowers are much more similar to this Swainsona formosa, and they're, they're called parrot's beak flowers, and you can see why they're called parrot's beak because oh, yes. they have yeah the really extremely long petals and the and the big black blob in the middle is is known as a boss uh and uh so but the the new zealand ones are much more similar in um i suppose in look to the swainsona then there there's australia's got about 85 species of swainsona i had no idea uh, but yeah. most of them are sort of purple they're the typical uh pea type flower so yes. they're in the fabaceae yes. group mm. yep. um which is why we've got that lovely uh bipinnate foliage mm. And um, but the other Swainsonas are the typical sort of small uh, pea top flowers, like you've got on the Austral indigo, the Indigophora australis, those little pea flowers. Uh, some might be orange and, and a couple of yellows, but uh, nothing like these incredible ones. Mm. Um, so these Swainsonas are actually grafted onto um, the Cleanthus, the New Zealand Cleanthus oh, right. um, um, one, which, yeah, much better suited to our conditions here and, and much more uh, capable of putting up with um, less than ideal drainage conditions, I suppose, because yep. where they grow in the desert, it's, yeah, of course, pretty well drained there. Um, and, uh, the, yeah, it, the, the grafting process is quite incredible. They graft them at cotyledon stage, so the cotyledon are those first 
those little seed leaves that appear after you've uh, propagated and, and, and germinated a plant, those two seed leaves, and then they remove um, the, the central growth, the, the real plant that's going to start emerging. They remove that and then graft uh, this uh, Swainsona formosa onto it. So quite a tricky process, I would oh, imagine. Heavens, yeah, yes. so absolutely tiny. <laughs> yes. Um, but they really are incredible, but they, they drink a lot of water. Mm. So I would have thought, um, being a desert plant, you don't want to give it too much water. Exactly. But yeah. uh, so I put it. You put grow them in a big pot. That is essentially the best thing. Big pot, native potting mix. I've, uh, as I have with quite a lot of my other plants, pot plants now, as I said, use pebbles on top. So that uh, just creates a real nice moist barrier, keeps it moist, makes it really easy to water so the potting mix doesn't float away. So it's in a pot that's probably, what we say, about 40 centimetres wide and it's not very deep. So it's one of those nice sort of round pots, so maybe about... 25 centimetres deep but it's got a good enough volume of potting mix and water it every day pretty much and and that is the trick and and they're actually quite um um heavy feeders even though they come from impoverished soil areas they are heavy feeders especially when they're flowering and to keep them flowering and looking amazing uh, you want to give them a, a, a soluble fertilizer every couple of weeks just to keep them looking good. So, how on earth in the wild are they getting all the nutrients and things? I would say they have a, an exceptionally good root system. Um, it might be the because it's a low rainfall area. A lot of the dust would settle on the a lot of nutrients would settle on the ground, yeah. and then that little bit of water washes that really washes that yeah into a the, really rich yeah. mix of. Uh, Soluble fertilizers exactly down into the right. root system, yes, I think, once right. a year rather than getting washed down, com- or, you know, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and but also I suppose another trick is to not water the leaves because they can be prone to a bit of mildew. Okay, uh, so you just want to water around the base of the plant without without hitting the, hitting the leaves, which is actually very easy to do. So, mm. but uh, yeah, a real treat of a plant, mm. and and I'm excited. I know how to yeah. grow it now. And mine's going off on the t- on the Christmas table. It's getting ready and it's uh, budding up. So, and would you keep it in full sun? Um, absolutely, full yeah. sun. Yeah, definitely full sun and uh, the grafted versions will probably last about three years. Then non-grafted versions, uh, you might get a year out of them. Okay. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I'll just let it die down. It'll die down and look scraggly and you, so you keep it watered uh, through the cooler months but not nearly as much water and then it'll shoot again. Okay. Yeah, but the, and the thing is they um, – they flower on the new growth, so it can. They'll set out these really sort of long stems eventually, and um, the the stems themselves can look a bit sort of bedraggled. But the flowers will be right at the very end. So if you want to have a slightly so don't tidy it up. <laughs> don't tidy it too much, but you want to prune it at the point before it starts setting flowers, so that it's actually putting out some new growth that you're going to have the flowers developing on the end rather than cutting off all your flowers mm. and just just a, a, a native food um not specifically okay yeah I, I i actually don't think they mind um yeah so they can handle a, a, an all-purpose a, an all-purpose yeah okay. an all-purpose fertilizer but uh yeah they're, they're a real 
unique plant to have around. Oh, and, they're amazing. Yeah, they yeah. really are. I mean, amazing. They're, they're not cheap for for a grafted version. They're thirty five dollars. So that's certainly, but I mean, when you think of a bunch of flowers, mm. you know, well, well, well with a bit of luck, you're going to get three years. Yeah, three out years of it, exactly. So. And yeah. think of the effort that's gone into getting them there. Gosh, oh, yeah. totally. So, yeah, that yeah. cotyledon grafting just yes. incredible. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so pretty pretty special plant. Yep. Yep. yep, haven't seen any uh, butterflies on it, so don't think it's particularly high in nectar. But uh, yeah, <laughs> very very specky plant. Uh, fantastic. Okay, all right. What have we got next? What else have we got? So water wise, all right. Oh, oh, let's go for this one. Now this is a West Australian one. Um, this is uh, a Gardenia pusilla, which has the very dubious and unfortunate uh, common name of uh, Mali Bonza, which I'm really not a particular fan of. But anyway, um, so it comes from... South- Bonza as in good one? Or- yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I was trying to figure out if that was a cultivar name, but it just seemed to be a, a general common name. Yes, right. So it's um, it's a small... Grow, well, so not small growing, low growing. Uh, so it gets to probably about 15 centimetres, um, uh, but it can spread to about two metres. So it grows typically in, in Jarrah forests and on the Swan Coastal Plain. So it likes that kind of real sort of uh, boggy-ish, uh, damp soil, um, So which tells you that really happy in part shade, uh, dappled shade, full sun conditions. Um, got the typical um, goodenia yellow flower, so really, really bright pop of yellow flowers that um, that all in this particular case they sit up on little stalks, probably about twelve centimeters, maybe ten to twelve centimeters tall, um, above the green foliage, sort of small green leaves, uh, quite matted, um, so really good for um, keeping weeds at bay, essentially. Yes, um, right, because it is quite mat forming and uh, looks just incredible when when they start spreading and or if they're planted on mass uh, but um, they look terrific but conversely they work really well in rockeries as well I was going to say it looks like, like something that someone who loves growing alpine plants would grow in a yeah, pot yeah, and absolutely. put in a show yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a pot or in rockeries terrific uh, flowers sort of through the summer months through the warmer months and um, yeah just a, a really lov- lovely plant and then there's a, a Victorian one which is the um, Gardenia gracilis uh, which is known as the slender goodenia, and that can get a bit taller. But again, it's that that same um, bright yellow flowers, like our, the hop goodenias and and things like that, which mm. we love to have in the garden. Uh, so yeah, I haven't seen any pollinators on it. Um, maybe because it's a West Australian plant, I'm not sure, but uh, it certainly adds a really bright pop of colour to the garden. So yeah, around the edges of ponds or in a, a damp spot in the garden, damp shady spot, perfect for brightening that up. Well. Well, yes, another another great way of adding colour yeah. into a pond yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have the hop gardenia in your garden? No, okay. no. That's yeah, I love that plant. I yeah. have to say. Yeah, yeah. So how how 
big would it spread to, the, roughly? The one plant can get up to about two metres. Oh, that's yeah, really which good. Which is a really good size. So, yeah. um, and it, it's easy to divide? You can sort of... Does I haven't it, does divided it, it, but I reckon it would be. It looks like it sort of... It, 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 it sort of grows sets un- roots. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. you can dig it up and pull that's it apart right, and plant them out. That's right, a bit of sort of yeah. action going on there. Yep. Um, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you'd be able to divide it really easily. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Just dig it up. No, that's a, no, that's a great one. It yeah. is. Very yeah. colourful. So who says that native plants aren't colourful? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Greg, let's go back to something else you've brought in. Well, I, I've also brought in uh, a combination of plants that I deal with every time I put clothes on the clothesline because um, <laughs> I stupidly planted one of these things right near the back door. Right. Um, and part of the... This, this one of the stupid parts of planting it right next to the back door is that it's got needles that are about an inch and a half, two inches long, and they'd puncture truck tyres. Um, it's one of the Berberis, so it's uh, uh, Berberis uh, julienne, um, and it's one of my favourite Berberis. Yeah, they're, they're oh, big needles. I, just, yeah. I, know. <laughs> I just saw the thorns. I was looking for the thorns, yeah. and they—they they are massive. Um, so it's it's evergreen, um, but unlike most evergreen plants. It has not only does it have autumn colour, it also has uh, spring foliage colour as well. So the the new shoots I bought one of the new shoots in there, a beautiful uh, burgundy, yes, a, lovely. a lovely burgundy colour. So the leaves, the, the the stock standard leaf looks similar to a holly leaf. It's a glossy dark green. It's got um, holly like little needles along the edge of the leaf. Yep. Um, it's quite a big growing shrub. Uh, the one at home is easily up to the the gutters on the house, um, and once it gets to a decent size, it'll it'll spread out as well. So mm. I think if you planted one in a good spot and just let it go, it would probably be three or four meters tall by about three or four meters wow. wide. Wow! Um, but like most Berberis, you can hack into them yep. if you're brave enough. Um, <laughs> if you've a, got a good, heavy duty gloves. <laughs> yes. Well, a, a good tip with handling Berberis when you're cutting them, I usually don't get uh, the one thing. If you prune roses, if you deal with a rose thorn, you get te- your skin gets teared, yeah, uh, and you usually get an infection. I like to think of Berberis as is more like a getting stabbed. So you don't get you, your flesh doesn't get torn. You just get a quick stab. Well, it doesn't have a hook on it. It goes yeah, yeah. straight in and, and out. And it doesn't break off in your skin either because they're they're wood. Like they're the tough yeah, thorns. Yeah. So you just get it. You just get stabbed, and I and still, it's over. Still would be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so so a good tip with dealing with when you're pruning them is just have a pitchfork, and so you, you get your long handle loppers. And you cut into the Berberis right. and you just flick them over onto a pile. Ah, right. And then when you get a big pile of them, you get your fork and you stab down into the pile with the fork yep. and then just lift it up with the fork because those barbs and needles actually help them cling to each other as well. Of course. That, it would, so, yeah. so if you can keep them in a big pile and then you just use the fork to lift up the whole pile and they're quite light and springy and yeah, then you yep. cart them off to the, the wherever you need to. If you have to shove them in a bin, it would be a bit tricky, I guess. Um Anyway, so I've I've got this uh, Berberis julienne near the back door, and I planted a, um, a fuchsia magellanica next to it right. when it was little. Yeah, and they grow in amongst each other, so you get the magellanica coming up out of the top of the this evergreen okay. Berberis, and right. then it's covered in flowers. So it's you've got bees and birds all over it. Okay. Um, but also the birds have got this little safe haven in this oh, yes. thorny Bird bush that nothing can get in. Yes, um, yes. 
And the, as I say, the yearly cycle for the Berberus is uh, springtime. You get this beautiful new burgundy growth mm. with the backing of these dark, glossy green leaves. Um, does you, it get berries? It does. You yep. can see uh, mm. this one here. They're, they're oh, yes. quite young at this stage, so they're sort of um, uh, quite a light lime green at this point. Yeah. Um, they actually turn black later in the season. Okay. Um, and so you've got the, the berries on it, yep. and the, the berries are on it pretty much all year round at different stages. Okay. Um, you've got the new leaf growth, which is burgundy on top of that. Mm. It flowers in late winter. It gets covered in these beautiful, bright, uh, yellowy, orange flowers in late winter. Um, and then in autumn, surprisingly for an evergreen plant, it gets beautiful autumn colour. So the older leaves further in the bush, uh, as they're dying and falling off, um, they turn the most intense yellows and hot reds. And wow. it looks like there's a, someone's lit a fire inside <laughs> the actual yeah, shrub itself. Yeah. So you get this... Uh, the outer outer green leaves stay green, yeah. But you get this beautiful bright yellows and hot reds sort of underneath the surface of the bush. So that's you're sort really of getting year round interest. It, it's the most amazing you? plant. Yeah. 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 Um, just don't plant it near your back door. We have to go out to hang your washing out constantly. <laughs> <laughs> or plant it where you don't want people to come in. Yes. yes. Yeah. It, yes. It's and it's a great screening plan, especially oh, if you yeah. want to stop people coming in because no one's going to push their way through one of no these way. once it gets established. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. yeah. There, there'd be. Uh, and, yeah, it was just by chance that I happened to put the, the good old Fuchsia Magellanica beside it. And it's actually a really good combination because that, despite you sort of think of it as a weedy, you know, nothing plant, yep. um, it's actually got flowers on it for most of the summer and the bees love it. Mm. Um, oh, I see. That's the Fuchsia yeah, flowers. Yeah, I was, that's it. I was thinking, gee, that yeah. Berberus has got very Fuchsia-like flowers. Yes, yeah, no, that's a Fuchsia <laughs> flower. Um, and they're just a really hardy, you know, uh, Good doing plant, yes. and, and by themselves they're a bit boring. But if you plant them in combination with something that sort of brings out their qualities, yeah. And when they're looking a bit drab, you know, the, you don't look at it; you look yeah. at the berberus. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's turned out to be quite a good little color. I love the look of the flowers with with the tiny little berries just forming on the end. They almost look like a fireworks yes, erupting. Yeah. And as you can They're see, fabulous. some of the some of the berry clusters, there's you know twenty or thirty berries in some yeah. of the clusters on there. Yeah, um, they look but, great. But as I say, the bush overall is just it's always busy. There's always something you know going something, on. something going on in this yeah. bush. Yeah, it's got yeah. something for every season. Um, yeah, just don't run into it because <laughs> it's it's sharp. Well, the, the thing is, you actually wouldn't if you didn't know the plant. The thorns are not particularly visible no so there's every chance of rushing into it and yeah and most berberuses are like that i, I used to sell um berberus thunbergii oh, yeah. at the at the farmers markets and of course when they come out into foliage you've got these beautiful soft looking deep burgundy black leaves that come out and they look gorgeous and people would come up i'd have to be careful where i'd put them on the stall of course because people would come up out. and they'd go oh look at that and you're always too late to say oh no don't do don't that don't do it <laughs> that bad idea <laughs> that's like the spinifexes yeah they yeah. look so soft and yeah. delicious yeah and boy oh boy do they pack a punch in they terms do of, and, and that's something you feel hours after yes. you, you can you know you've walked into a spinifex hours <laughs> yes. later yeah <laughs> Oh dear! What else have you got there, Greg? Um, He's got a floor full of goodies. Though. I know, I know. <laughs> so I, Whoa, I thought, look at this. Because we're getting into the hottest part of summer. Um, I grew up with hyd hydrangeas. I, I think when I was seventeen, I had the 
species hydrangea collection with the wow. the OPCA huh, okay. or whatever uh, yeah. it was called then That's or impressive. is now. Yeah. Um, so I've had this sort of thing with hydrangeas for my li- uh, most of my life. And growing up in Mount Masson, it's sort of, you know, understandable. There's hydrangeas everywhere. Yeah. Um, but moving away from somewhere like Mount Macedon, they're quite hard to grow in a lot of places. Uh, um, and I found probably because I was more interested in the species ones as I got older, um, uh, some of the American species are quite nice, but they've also got – they're much more drought tolerant than mm. the, the ones from Asia and, and Japan. Yep. Um, and I think – Quercifolia, like the Berberus, uh, so the, the one I bought in was the, is the double Quercifolia, which is called uh, Snowflake, um, and it's one of those plants that does something all year round. So it's got uh, beautiful foliage in in summer. Uh, it has flowers pretty much all through the warmer months, mm. um, and the flowers on it are huge. So the, the stem I've bought in, so it's one stem. It's got uh, five or six smaller flowers uh, that are about uh, 15 centimetres long, 10, 15 centimetres long. Um, but the main flower at the end of the stem is 30 or 40 centimetres long. Uh, it's a big panicle. It's sort of a apple whitish green colour um, and it's got beautiful little double flowers. Mm. Um, it's quite an, The Quercifolia is a fairly open flower head, so it's not a big, dense, uh, you know, you, you can, there's... It's not just florets. You can see the sort of green undertones. Yep. Um, but as a shrub, this thing, uh, I've got these planted on the eastern side of my house out the front and I haven't watered them this season. That, that's from a plant that hasn't been watered this year. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, the plants get probably about uh, a metre and a half tall, I guess, um, and left to their own devices can get several metres wide. Uh, they'll sort of grow in spreading, sprawling clumps if you let them. Um, and the flowers get autumn colour as well, so they'll sort of go pinks and, and weird colours in autumn as long mm. as they're not burnt, which this one you can see is already starting to get burnt. That's one thing that the summer does do. It burns the flowers a little bit. But um, So a, a bit of a shade lover or dappled shade? And it, it, as I say, it's, it's east, east yeah. side of the house, yeah. so it's out of the hot. I'd, I'd keep it out of the hot afternoon sun yeah. and, the hot, and winds, like yeah. the northerly winds and northwesterly winds. Um, but it doesn't need a lot of water, mm-hmm. um, and I'd keep it out in the frost because when this gets frost on it, it's almost evergreen, so it doesn't actually drop its leaves over winter. Okay. But what it does do is the the leaves go from this uh, the, the greeny colour that they are now to you can you burgundy. can see a little bit of that burgundy, burgundy yeah. on, on some of them, uh, but that burgundy also goes to black. You know that, that okay. sort of uh, that purpley black you get on liquid ambers. Yes, it's yes. that colour. Yes, um, right. And you, but it, amongst that, you'll get hot oranges and hot reds as well. So wow, th- and it'll hold on to those autumn colours all winter. Mm. Um, it even has some older flowers on it well into winter, um, and then by the start of spring, you're already getting the next season's flowers on it. So uh, as far as the Heidi's go, it's probably the best hydrangea to have. It's much more drought tolerant. It's mm-hmm. got stuff to offer all year round pretty mm. much. Um, and they're quite tough. Uh, yeah. Uh, but even just as a shrub in general, it's it's a really good plant. And you don't see it round in a lot of nurseries because no. I know a lot of people that want them. Yeah. I found them a little bit tricky to propagate when I was growing. Okay. Some years I'd put in, uh, uh, I'd put in 20 cuttings and get 25 plants somehow. 
And then other years I'd put well, 300 then... cuttings in and get none. Yeah, that's um, right. So it's, it's funny. Wh- it looks like it would strike quite easily. Yeah, and it probably does if you're good at it. It's just that I never quite – they're not as easy as the the old hybrid hydies where yeah. you just sort of stick them in the ground and keep and water on them and they'll yeah. grow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, is it affected by pH in the soil like the – it doesn't seem to be. I, I, I'm in volcanic soil, so yep. it's it's um, the pH should be fairly low, I'd imagine, um, but not outwardly so. But I don't I don't think it it doesn't particularly as long as it's in a reasonable range for most plants, it, it'll cope okay. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I just keep it out of the hot wind and hot sun, mm. and go and ask your nursery to get it because that might encourage some people more people to grow it because mm. it's just not you don't see it around. It's really hard to get. Um, I'm sure, uh, you know, Craig might grow it uh, up at uh, Gentiana or yep. um, there'd be places you could, definitely could get it. But uh, um, And I'm sure Stephen – I would have got mine off Stephen originally, so he's probably stocks it as well. But, right. um, yeah, it's, it's it's should be something that's really easy to get mm. considering some Heidi's still are really easy to get. Yep. But this was probably one of the best ones. It's It sort of does something well, all year round. Well, it's certainly spectacular. Um, and – yeah, it's it's probably got amongst the biggest flowers. I mean, I've had bigger flowers nearly twice as big as this one. Really? So Goodness. looking at flower heads that can get nearly a metre long. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's quite a nice little shrub as well on, yeah. on top of that. So just give the name out again, Groat. So it's uh, Hydrangea Quercifolia Snowflake. Snowflake. Yep. Okay. So it sounds like you've got a bit of a uh, jungle garden. Uh, it, it's uh, – I, I, don't, I spend most of the time out in in the wild in now, the so, do, so yeah, yeah, the, yeah. everything that at home survives on its own yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. there's okay. there's, uh, there's not not a lot of tending in my garden anymore, and yeah. it's pretty wild. But I get, get to do all the fun stuff in other people's gardens, so I sort of go home <laughs> much and much easier oh, that so way. I've got other things to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say so visiting Stephen's garden a couple of weeks ago. I haven't been there for years, and boy, is that. A treat to explore oh, you, now the, it is, the nooks it? and crannies. It's really quite exceptional. You, you used to be able to see the neighbours' houses. You can't see them at all anymore. You just it's so just, much better than lawn, isn't it? Oh man, it's just <laughs> twisting, turning paths, and it's absolute treat. They've just yep. done an incredible job there. It's yeah. just yeah, real um, and of masterclass. course he's got the big pond as well. The and big the, pond, yep. and yeah, just quite terrific. And we, uh, so I went with Loretta. So we went there first, and then we went to the Calum yep. Garden, and I was so impressed, mostly with his incredible cat run that they've got along the side of the house. So okay. these cats, obviously, they're not allowed out at all, yep. um, but as in out in, in the bush and, and the garden. But they've got the, – the, the side of the house is probably, I don't know, probably 15 metres long, and this incredible cat run that was attached to it, it went up and down. They had these little climbing areas where they could go. They could come down to the ground in a particular section. They had their litter box in one secluded little uh, um, box so that nobody could see them doing their business, and they came in and out of the house through a window. And I just thought that was – Absolutely brilliant! Mm. It's a way of having your having your cats and not eating them too. <laughs> <laughs> but and I went to uh, just 
hearing you mention the word Heidi, I went to Heidi recently the um, in Heidelberg, uh, the garden there, and noticed they had an incredible cat run as well. So it's uh, quite possible to have your cats. And I just think looking back, they must have been real forerunners in terms of uh, keeping cats away from wildlife. I yes, think. yes. Um, back at Heidi. So, uh, yeah, I was extremely impressed. It's nice to give your animals something to do too. It's a, the same with dogs as well if you if you got to lock them up you know I, I get to take my dogs with me e- everywhere yeah um but not everyone does and That's right. you see you know uh working dogs especially that are quite mental need mental stimulation because mm, yes. it's what they've been mm. bred for that's mm. right and if they're locked in a small area and have nothing to do yes they go mad they yes, you know you, exactly you, you see older dogs and they're not well mentally yes. um and cats are the same they, a lot of cats just like sleeping most of the day but mm. if you give them something exciting to do for the 10 minutes that they tear, tear <laughs> they around being things, yeah. uh, oh and i think they get up to a, quite a bit at night <laughs> yes yeah. yes well that's true that's and the, the point yeah mm. and the university of south australia did an incredible study uh they tracked uh, about 20 cats and uh you can hop onto the website and see where these cats go, yeah. and they were just out and about in the neighbourhood, and yeah, quite quite incredible, obviously, and and dangerous for the cats as well as as well as for the wildlife. Mm. So, mm. no, I was very impressed with the uh, with the Calum Cat Run, and the cats were there Good. lounging around, watching visitors. So, yeah, oh, excellent, terrific. Hey, B, it's nearly time for us to finish, but I do think we've got time for that last plant you haven't mentioned. All right, Boloskian. Let's talk about Boloskian tetraphyllum. Um, this one's called Feathertip. So this is... That's um, a very accurate name, actually. It is, it's yeah. Good it's, it's one of the uh, speckier plants. We've got this in the pond at work, and it's um, real. It's bright green. It's quite feathery. Um, and as with the other plants that I brought in, it does it does form a bit of a clump. It can it's a bit tall, I suppose. It can get to just under two meters tall. Um, absolutely terrific habitat for frogs and insects, and uh, really terrific in the middle of a pond. So it can take quite relatively deep water. Um, might the clumps might get up to about one and a half meters wide. Mm. Um, so and there's there's various um, forms of the or various species and um, cultivars of the Boloskian, which were originally I think in the Restio um, genus. That seems to sort of ring a bell for me. Um, but yeah, really bright green and a, a, as we have established quite feathery looking yes and um with a bit of sort of um rusty colored uh foliage as it ages so and quite um quite coarse stems very small stems with some um with some a bit of red it's deceptive so because the feathery look looks like it should be soft yes but it's quite but it's quite actually rigid, rigid. And upright. yes yeah. and it's holding its 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 height yeah really well. and, and that's exactly what it does in the pond it does you know a few of the um the outside branches will arch over but essentially it just holds its upright form really well so mm. um yeah i suppose i mean none of these apart from the uh gardenia and the Lithrum, they're not you don't plant them for the flowers for you as such they're not no. sort of those ornamental flowers but yep. of course they all do flower and and they they're structurally shaped. quite beautiful they're, they, they are actually yes. absolutely beautiful so it's just a way of i suppose bringing a different element into the garden and as you were talking about greg we don't need we don't need a pond we don't need a wetland we can just have a big pot 
big pot with water, a bit of soil, um, need that soil. I've discovered it, it's actually better to get them out of the pots because mm. um, although they will grow in pots, they, they thrive. Leave them be as free as you can. Absolutely. You can yeah, yeah, do, yeah, yeah. No, they do thrive a lot more if you let them out of the pot. And I've literally planted mine directly into the scoria mm. and uh, I didn't bother washing the soil off and, and over time that soil will break down and then the plant will, plant well, will and start the, And the roots the of the plant, those types of plants to get the stuff out of the water and and dead litter and collect it around them and make their own soil over time so you you sort of you leave a little bit of soil when you plant it yep and you cover the rest with scoria and the the little pockets in the scoria fill up with that silt that the plants sort of build their own soil that's right and they'll suck all that uh excess nutrients out of the water and stop that algae from forming you can can get native fish too for things like that as long as you have you can get small native fish that uh don't actually eat tadpoles yeah so uh, you just have to make sure that you are getting the native fish Mm. um which can be a bit tricky but yeah it's um yes. Although goldfish do work because it's goldfish do work, but they eat tadpoles. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. They <laughs> so, also eat uh, mosquito larvae. Yes, well, they, which they is do. Good to have yeah, something yeah, to eat yeah, that, yeah. That is right. So, 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 are you hoping that? Um, I mean, do you have any fish in in the pond? No, but we're going to put fish in. We're going right. we're going to get some native fish in there, uh, because the last thing you want is is, is a lot of um, you know creating the mosquito breeding ground. That's exactly mm. right. And and mosquitoes uh, they're not going to go in the pond as much because it's a bit deeper. But yes. yeah, I suppose anything shallower than thirty centimeters, mm. uh, they're going to be attracted to. And that's right. Yeah. So the idea is to yeah get get a few fish in there and and also bring in the frogs in. You, you know. But it, even with the small uh, pots that we've got, I've made axes in and out so that the frogs can get in there. The mm. ones that are going to be eating the wrigglers. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. It's exciting. It, it is very exciting. <laughs> Watch this space. You can hop onto my Instagram and, and see the uh, progression of the pond. Oh, good. So, okay. Yes. Excellent. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time for um, not only this program, but for um, this year, would you believe? Yes, it's. What a year again. Um, but a huge thank Been you fun. to, um, to uh, firstly to Robin and Rosemary, um, who, uh, like all the phone volunteers, uh, give up a Sunday morning once a mm. month and come in and uh, man the phones for us. A big thank you to not only to AB and Greg, but to all the uh, presenters who come in right throughout the year because, uh, as I say, we're all volunteers. Nobody gets paid a cent. And, and Sunday morning is a hard time for people to give up, you know, where they can't sleep in and, uh, and uh, you know, in the middle of winter when it's pitch black and raining. But uh, I really do appreciate it. And, of course, uh, very, very best wishes, Christmas wishes to all our listeners. Um, hopefully 2020 is going to be... Uh, an exciting, a healthy, a happy year for all our listeners. As I've mentioned, we will be back uh, 2nd of February, Sunday 2nd of February, running through for then another another 12 months of gardening radio. So uh, until then, have a great Christmas. Bye for now. Welcome to another. We're
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.